Welcome to the second season of The Sound of IR, a podcast that seeks to educate aspiring interventional radiologists about the clinical practice of IR. I'm Jigtesh Sandhu and am currently taking a research year with the IR department at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And I'm Santa Herwald, a fourth-year medical student at Tufts University School of Medicine. We work with a great team of students, residents, and attendings using the power of podcasts to explore topics in interventional radiology. As the host of today's episode, we hope you find it both educational and enjoyable. We're very excited to introduce this next episode of The Sound of IR, in which Sana and I will discuss the role of IR in stroke treatment with Dr. Sabine Don, who's an interventional radiologist who trained at Northwestern University and is currently working at Lambert Radiology at PIH Health in Whittier, California, near Los Angeles. His main interests are in peripheral vascular disease, particularly critical limb ischemia and limb salvage, interventional oncology, venous disease, and of course, stroke. I was really interested in interviewing Dr. Dond after seeing some of the very interesting stroke cases he shared over Twitter. So I think a lot of our listeners will find this episode very interesting because it's one of our first episodes that delves into neuro-IR. And neuro-IR may not be something that everyone gets a chance to see on their IR rotation, but... In specific, the treatment of stroke can be one of the most rewarding procedures where you can see immediate improvement of something as debilitating as hemiparesis. Sana, what are are some of the specific things in this episode that our listeners might find especially compelling? Well, in this episode, I was fascinated by Dr. Don's description of the actual procedure, the actual thrombectomy and removing a stroke-causing clot from inside somebody's brain without um, even opening the skull. And so I was really struck by the really painstaking technical skill and caution and focus required because not as much as you're trying to cure a stroke, you're also trying to avoid causing a stroke in uh, the course of your procedure. Um, But of course, there's more to stroke treatment than just the mechanical thrombectomy. Definitely. And we had a very interesting discussion in this episode of uh, what happens when a stroke alert first gets called to when the patient actually is in the IR suite ready for the procedure and all the different decision-making and types of scans that are done um, to get to that point. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that the discussion of the different types of imaging that were used was very interesting because it seems like there's multiple types of diagnostic imaging that can be used in working up a patient who has a stroke. And so understanding which one of those might be more helpful and what the different types of scan tell you was uh, very interesting to me. It seems like there's always new technology in IR that can help us provide even better patient care. And finally, we kind of wrap this episode up with a very intriguing discussion of the impact of the two recent uh, major trials on stroke treatment, the Diffuse and Dawn 3 trials, and how they'll impact the future practice and treatment of stroke over the next five to 10 years, and also the training for um, IR residencies. Um, This is all due because there's going to be an increasing number of thrombectomies that are being performed across the country uh, in direct uh, relation to the effects of these trials. Absolutely. Uh, So without further ado, uh, we're very excited to present to you our discussion of the role of IR in stroke treatment with Dr. Sabine Dond. Hi, Dr. Dond. We wanted to thank you for being with us today. Um, We'd like to start and ask you if you could share some of your story how you decided to become an interventional radiologist. Well, uh, thank you for letting me be part of this podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm always excited to share kind of all these kind of little bits and pieces I've learned over the past couple of years. So thanks again. Um, you know, I've always been kind of a gadget geek and uh, had a passion for tech. 
And so it was kind of fortuitous of landing into IR. I randomly signed up for a research project kind of early in my med school career, and I had no idea what IR radiology was. And the project was in uh, uterine fibroid embolization. So that's when I met Robert Ryu, Bob Vogelzang, Howard Christman, and they were kind of an awesome group of people to meet and get introduced to IR. So after that, it was kind of a no-brainer. I just, I just fell in love with the floral suite and procedures and, and grew from there. So, you know, I kind of, that's how I fell into IR. I almost went into ortho for a second, but I'm really glad I didn't. It's always nice to hear people's stories about how they ended up in IR. Now that you do practice IR, how did you decide to structure your current practice? What were the certain things that you really wanted to have be part of your practice? So, um, you know, I, when I joined PIH Health and Lambert Radiology, it was already sort of well-developed. I joined a practice of three IRs. But when I was looking for a job, I, I was looking for something that had a little bit of development already and had the right mindset. So I was really looking for, you know, a practice that was focused on IR and, and on the clinical development of IR and, and not just kind of um, IR as a secondary opinion, kind of as a primary goal. And that's kind of how this job was advertised and exactly what it was when I, when I joined. And, you know, when, as far as structuring goes personally, I, I was hired to increase the interventional oncology program, especially coming from Northwestern and doing Y90. And that's when I got introduced to neuro, which I had no idea I would do all throughout training. And I, I love, you know, just getting into the massive neuro and, and learning stroke. Um, and with that, we'd love to launch into the discussion of the role of interventional radiology or IR in stroke treatment. So, Dr. Don, my understanding is that for patients with an ischemic stroke, time is of the essence. And these patients undergo a special triage process so that they receive the appropriate treatment uh, very quickly. Could you uh, walk us through the stroke triage process, starting from when a stroke alert is called? Yeah, definitely. So just like you said, time is of the essence. I mean, there's a popular quote a lot of people like to use called time is brain. And uh, out of everything in um, IR, I think it's one of the most time-pressing procedures because time is brain. And you know, when a stroke alert is called, there's two different kind of alerts that generally get in processed with stroke centers now. And they're either with transfers, so someone who's coming in from another hospital, which may already be worked up, or a totally new stroke. And, and what I'll focus on is kind of just a new stroke, someone who comes into the ER. And it really comes down to a really, you know, well-developed team. So the ER, uh, the ner- stroke neurologist, and the IR are kind of the three main people who are alerted and work together to get everything done quickly. Um, you know, that's that comes from getting a CT done, which we'll talk about, to making the decision whether it's a candidate for both uh, thrombectomy and or TPA. And during this triage process, what are the, the decisions the interventional radiologist and the stroke neurologist and ER, decision, uh, ER physician are making? So just like you kind of mentioned about the two different types of stroke, that's the main thing um, to determine, you know, whether this is a hemorrhagic or ischemic stroke, since the treatment algorithms completely differ. And the next 
part of the treatment is whether the patient should be getting IV TPA um, and the next treatment. So that's actually all based on, you know, some historical factors, whether the patient's on blood thinners, as well as imaging. So imaging comes into a huge role. All these patients are getting a CT of the head to make sure what's going on. Is there a, is there a big bleed? Is there a mass? I mean, uh, multiple different conditions can face themselves like a stroke. So uh, you just have to figure that out. And so the IR has the ability to have the diagnostic ability to look at the scans as well as the clinical side to work with the stroke neurologist to decide whether this is a candidate for thrombectomy. Now, other factors that come into it is, is to determine where the blood clot is. And that's where a stroke neurologist or someone with a good neural background can even know even before an imaging like a CTA or perfusion. And that's based on where the patient's symptoms are, including some of the things you don't think of, not just, you know, left leg weakness or whatnot, but neglect, gaze. These are some of the the things you don't learn necessarily in a radiology residency or beginning in IR, but you can learn a lot from your stroke colleagues. So um, all of these factors come into play to make a decision what's the next step uh, between IV TPA and arthrombectomy. In terms of the location of the stroke and whether or not there's a mass or the patients on blood thinners, would these things make you more likely to do a thrombectomy? Yeah, you know, as far as, so if there's a mass, usually, you know, those patients will leave alone. Usually the stroke is not really caused by an ischemic event, but more due to, you know, swelling in the brain. Um, and and maybe some mass effect in the brain. But really, you know, what determines whether we take them to a thrombectomy, before there used to be some very strict short time windows. You know, know, two years ago, I would be talking about, you know, it has to be within eight hours by the data. And, you know, just recently, a couple months ago, uh, the DAWN um, trial showed that, you know, you can go up to 24 hours. And... uh, um, you know, it, so the window has really increased. So now it becomes a decision of how much brain is there to save. And that's going to be, again, usually based on imaging. And that's going to be uh, hard to know just clinically because their deficit is going to look the same whether or not the brain is infarcted or not. So, you know, the, the perfusion you know, scans that we do now really have aided in helping us determine who are good candidates. Uh, blood thinners don't really matter. Uh, we, we frequently do both thrombectomy and TPA, uh, in a pa- and a patient will get TPA as well, uh, just if their time window match matches. So you mentioned with the uh, perfusion scans that you guys often do now. Is that something that's being more routinely... Uh, done for uh, most stroke calls, or is it a patient-by-patient basis based on, like, their clinical presentation and their original CT scan? So it's a great question. You know, if someone – this is somewhat of a controversy if a patient presents really early on, say within three to six hours. But, you know, it is by our practice to do some sort of imaging protocol – that will look for ischemic penumbra. And penumbra is the 
area of the brain that's, that's seeing limited blood flow but hasn't died yet. And the other terminology we use is core, and core means that brain is dead. And the perfusion imaging really shows that well, and doing it with CT is usually the fastest, and you can get a CTA too, which helps with procedural planning. So I would say, you know, at least 95% of our patients get both, a non, uh, get all three scans, um, unless something's seen on the non-contrast study that just tells you that you're not going to do anything. So we frequently call it in the ER a triple scan, and that means non-contrast CT, CTA, and CT perfusion. Um, you can do other things, and, and if, if the hospital doesn't have a perfusion scanner, it, you can do a limited MRI uh, with, with a diffusion-weighted sequence that kind of shows you know, the area at risk. But really, we found that the perfusion, CT perfusion scans tend to be the best and fastest. And uh, just for some of our listeners who maybe haven't had their radiology rotations yet, can you have a very general sense of what a perfusion scan looks like and, and what it tells you? Yeah. You know, a perfusion scan, if you haven't seen radiology, is probably the coolest scan to see because <laughs> there's a lot of colors. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's actually, you know, um, you know, I bet an eighth grader can actually look at a perfusion scan and tell you what's wrong because what it does is, technically speaking, it'll scan the brain at the same slice multiple times, so in different time intervals. So it is looking at how fast the blood flow is coming to that area of the brain. And using complex equations and and, and nothing that we have to go into, it will assign a color map. And usually red is in the area where it's really slow, and then blue or green is where it's normal. And the brain, as most of our body, is very symmetric. So you basically can compare the whole area and you'll see a big area of red and a big area of blue and you can tell what what is penumbra it's a little bit more technical things to it but really it's a it's kind of a beautiful scan looks really nice and again it's, it's one of the more colorful things that's available in radiology and uh, it gives you so much info as well and I'm all personally all for more more color in radiology. Yeah, I know, I know. It's nice and refreshing to see a perfusion scan. It sounds like an interventional radiologist could get called very early in the patient's presentation, almost as soon as they're presenting to the hospital. Are there also cases where interventional radiology comes into the picture a little bit later in the process? For example, what's the latest in a patient's workup for stroke that's been called? Yeah, that's a great question. And also something that you know, comes up a lot because time metrics are really important in in stroke, you know, from the time the patient arrives to the ER, everything is, is monitored as far as door to puncture. These are some of the terms that are used in a lot of these studies, door to puncture time, door to CT scan, and, and things like that. And we've noticed that the later the IR is called, the more time it takes to get to the to do the procedure if it's something that's indicated. So in our practice now, we are pretty much notified quite early on if there's a suspicion of a large vessel occlusion. And that's a terminology for just saying a, a big stroke in the brain. And I think it's better. You know, sometimes some people get, 
you know, a little bit worried, you know, you're going to get more phone calls overnight. But honestly, I'd rather have that and shave off 30 minutes of, um, you know, the ability to, to take out a clot than, than save 30 minutes otherwise. So um, the earlier, the better. You know, we don't get called for every single stroke, but, you know, when there's something that fits a good picture, we're called before a perfusion scan is being taken. Usually by the time the non-contrast CT is up, we're called. And I just want to ask two follow-up questions to that. The first is uh, for the door to puncture time. That's the time from the patient arrives in the hospital till the time that um, interventional radiology is starting the procedure. Is that right? Yeah, till the point where you, you, you're putting the needle into the groin. Um, so exactly. And, and those, those times can vary you know, significantly. Um, metrics try to make it about 90 minutes. 60, I mean, 60 minutes would be great. Um, we can get really quick if, especially if it's a transfer or something like that. Wow. 60 minutes is really fast to get things done. Oh, actually 60, I I believe I have to review is, 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 is almost what they want. And, and uh, by metrics, you even want it shorter than 60 minutes since basically you get the CT scan, everything started and you get the patient down to the suite. So yeah, I think you're, you're working fast (laughs) when these things happen. Mm -hmm. It seems that interventional radiology is called frequently for patients with a large volume stroke, even before they've had all of their imaging, for example, before they had their perfusion scan. How often do you have a patient that you're called about for a potential intervention who ends up not having an intervention? And, um, and in those cases, what's usually the, what are some of the typical reasons why a patient might not have an intervention after all? Oh, yeah. So, you know, I would say more, the majority of the time is, uh, you know, where we get called and the patient ends up not being a candidate. And that would be, you know, typical in someone who has already what we call a completed infarct is when that core infarct is large. And, you know, unfortunately, for some reason, you know, maybe it took too long for the patient to present and come to the hospital or the patient's collaterals is what really keeps your brain alive during this time aren't that well developed, are, are not that well. So then the patient, unfortunately, if the brain has already infarcted, there's no point to take the clot out um, as it's not going to change anything. So, yeah, I would say more than, more than half. I mean, uh, we get called a lot. But we help with the decision-making for the stroke neurologist in the ER. So, you know, because we're, we're using, you know, fortunately our, our basis of imaging and, and we know the perfusion scans and how to read them. Uh, it's better to hear about too many patients who potentially need treatment than too few like that. Exactly. You know, it's, it's better to be over, you know, to overestimate than underestimate. So you mentioned um, a couple of the imaging findings that um, would make a patient um, amenable to an IR based treatment, such as mechanical thrombectomy. So I guess when you, uh, when you kind of know that a patient is going to go uh, for thrombectomy, and do you still have them like uh, have TPA or like get treatment, uh, get that treatment as well? Yeah, you know, I mean, right now, and there's some trials undergoing to see, you know, how how it's how the outcome will be. But right now, the first decision to make is whether the patient should get TPA or not, and that's independent of thrombectomy. And you know, the patient will get TPA, but then. Um, that doesn't prevent us to go to thrombectomy. 
that may prevent us from doing a couple things such as intraarterial TPA maybe, or it may uh, prevent us from giving aspirin or Plavix right after the procedure in case we, you know, put a stent or, or something. It may, it may tailor our treatment, but it doesn't stop it. And in fact, I've seen a couple cases where the TPA is actually working, at least dissolves some of the clot by the time we're doing the angio. So, you know, current, I think that the TPA will continue uh, and, and we haven't seen an increased risk of bleeding or whatnot by intervening just because of TPA. Now, as far as other therapies go, you know, I, I would say the main for an ischemic stroke, whether, you know, it's something you can intervene on, it's going to be both TPA and our thrombectomy. Okay, that's, <clears throat> that's really interesting that uh, um, you can still go in there for a mechanical thrombectomy even after they start TPA. Yeah, I was, you know, worried when I first started at something that worried me because they get a lot of TPA. I mean, it's a, it's a big dose. <laughs> and, you know, you would be worried that, oh, is the groin going to bleed or whatnot? But it's really, it's no issue. And, you know, going into the brain, I mean, you have to be careful. You have to be careful with your wire. And it's, it's a whole different, you know, field compared to peripheral. Um, but it's something that's pretty easy to learn as long as you have a right mentor. Okay. And is it, um, is it usually you as an interventional radiologist that would administer the thrombolytic drugs or does that get done by like the ER physician or a neurologist? Yeah, it's, it's done by the ER and the neurologist. It's, it's basically a bag you just hang. So really the, the nurse puts it up, but the decision is made by the neurologist and the ER physician. Usually, um, my first question when I get called, you know, is did the patient get TPA? So, you know, I'm not even involved usually with the TPA decisions um, unless they have a question for me about it. Okay. And now I kind of want to get into like the mechanical thrombectomy procedure itself. Um, when, like before you start the procedure, what like uh, basic information do you want to know about like the patient's vasculature or uh, like the imaging characteristics or where the clot might be that could help you um, in doing the procedure? Yeah, you know, so that's where the imaging comes into play again. You know, obviously obtaining a, a CTA is going to show you the side of the clot and where it is. But the other advantage of a CTA is it shows you the neck and it shows you the aortic arch. And that's the first thing, you know, after I look at the clot, then I start looking down and I look at what am I going to deal with on my pathway to the clot. So um, one of the major things is, you know, the internal carotid artery at the neck bifurcation. A lot of times the clots originate from there. So it could be heavily diseased and I may have to run into kind of some nasty territory there. And then also I can look at the aortic arch and, you know, where the carotids come off sometimes it's very tortuous. So that's going to determine what catheters, wires, and, and sheets that I'll use to go up. Um, I think the hardest part learning about neurovascular uh, interventional uh, techniques was just learning the aortic arch and how to get up the neck. It's, it's, it can be pretty tough in these old patients, especially with really bad atherosclerosis. And so their vessels are tortuous you're working with long lengths. 
from the groin. And, you know, until recently, and my group has, has been involved in doing this, is doing some strokes from the wrist and doing it from the, the radial artery, which has actually been pretty, pretty great and a lot easier. Can't do it for all of them, and first choice is groin, but that's the stuff I'm looking at um, initially. You know, before the patient comes on the table, I'm looking at their aortic arch, their carotids, and I'm thinking in my head, what system am I going to use? Okay. That, yeah, that's very interesting to see how you uh, kind of evaluate the patient preoperatively. Now, I understand with like neurointerventional, like a lot of the devices that you use are different from uh, kind of what you use with like the body vasculature. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're different. Even from the sheath, the sheets, every, first of all, from, uh, um, you know, just a practical standpoint, they're usually a lot more softer um, and, and flexible compared to your peripheral um, devices. And that's just so you don't dissect or cause any damage, as well as go up all this tortuous anatomy. Um, you know, and so that, that has to do with the catheters, wires, and sheets. And then the actual devices for stroke, they're pretty unique to stroke. And I think some of the companies are trying to come up with similar devices for the peripheral system um, in regards to a stent retriever. But uh, these devices are, are really great. They work, they work excellent in combination with aspiration in order to remove a focal clot out of a system that's kind of unique. The brain is unique where the blood flow can be reversed if you apply suction. So... You know, if you ever start reading into stroke and technique, you know, there's these things called balloon guide catheters, and those will help you reverse the flow um, uh, in the brain that kind of helps you get the clot and prevent distal embolization. But learning the devices were just, were, were, were they were new to me. You know, I, I didn't do any neuro in my training. And so um, it just, it was a steep learning curve, but it's totally, you know, something that once you're exposed to it, it's, it's easy to learn. Okay. And uh, so you did mention uh, one complication that could occur, which is distal embolization. Um, mm-hmm. What are some other compl- intra-procedural complications that can happen with uh, clot removals? Yeah. So just to, to clarify, distal embolization is, you know, when you pull the clot, sometimes the clot can break off. And before it was in the proximal part of the brain, but then it, the, it, it breaks off and goes into the more peripheral, uh, smaller vasculature. So, so that can happen. And that's probably the most common, you know, quote unquote, complication you can have in these procedures. Now, the more um, devastating complications you can have, and, and this is the part where, you know, you have to have a mentor show you how to navigate the cerebral vasculature is, is a bleed. And... Um, the brain is is not forgiving. If if you if your wire goes into a small vessel, and for example, in your middle cerebral artery, you have these tiny vessels that are like hairs, and they're called lenticulostriate arteries. And if your wire goes into one of those, and you you know you don't really handle it well, the, those those arteries will just bleed, and. When you, have a, when you have a bleed like that in your brain, it's usually massive that causes herniation. And most of those patients, you know, or at least the ones that happen to me, they'll, they'll die. And um, so that's something that is really scary at first. Uh, but once, you know, you kind of learn that 
kind of aspect of the brain, then, you know, the, that is, is, is a low risk of happening, but it can. And I always consent my patients for it. Other complications could be, you know, a vessel injury, like a dissection. I haven't seen that happen, but it can. Um, and, you know, always with any angiogram is, is an injury to the, the groin where you're at. But that's much less of a concern here when you're, you're trying to save the brain. Finally, you know, another thing that's unique to the brain is that in these procedures, you use these things called continuous drips. And it's something we don't do very often in the peripheral space. And you have saline that's constantly being dripped through any catheter. And it's because if you, you know, inject a bubble or a clot into the brain, it's going to be another stroke. And you don't really, it doesn't really matter. Not saying that you can do it in the periphery, but if you do it in the liver or the leg, it doesn't really matter. Uh, but in the brain, again, it's, it's the most unforgiving organ in the body. And it's, you know, you, the last thing you want to do is cause another stroke on top of a stroke. Okay, I see. So there's a lot, a lot you need to be careful of in these procedures, which kind of goes to what you were saying about having a good mentor and like learning it well. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the things that originally got me into uh, stroke interventional radiology uh, was that I was on the stroke team during my neurology rotation for two weeks. And during that time, I was lucky to be able to see a lot of mechanical thrombectomies, which, got, which is what originally got me interested in this topic. Now, in my first mechanical thrombectomy, I had a patient with left-sided weakness and facial droop. And uh, almost immediately after the clot was removed, I remember... Uh, he began gaining more awareness and uh, some movement on the left side of his body, which was really amazing to see. And I wanted to ask you, Dr. Don, in your experience um, with your patients, how quickly do they usually respond to uh, treatment? Yeah, you know, I would agree. They usually respond pretty quickly. And in general, they, they tend to respond over a couple hours or usually the next day. But the really remarkable cases which happen are the ones that respond immediately, which can happen. And, you know, it just reminds me of one case I had where it was literally probably the second day of when I started my practice and I was doing stroke uh, with my mentor and the guy started moving his arm and started talking as we pulled out the clot, as I was looking at the clot on the table. And that really was pretty remarkable and fascinating to me, which got me really involved and passionate about stroke. Yeah, that, that is really amazing. And uh, now, I guess, kind of as a transition point, um, for our listeners, could you describe how you do a mechanical thrombectomy uh, step by step? Yeah, definitely. So what I do is once the patient's on the table and everything's ready to go, I like to use the balloon guide catheter. And that's basically a catheter. It's relatively large. It has a balloon at the end of it. And that balloon can be inflated so that you can occlude the artery. And usually that artery is the internal carotid artery. So what I do is I take an eight French sheath, which is pretty big, and I put that into the artery in the groin. And I always use ultrasound for access, which I think is what everyone should do. And I take the balloon guide catheter up into the aorta, and I use an angled catheter. Usually it's just like a hockey stick angled catheter. It's called a vert. And I use a soft wire to select the artery that I want to go into. And I use that whole system kind of as a rail to take that balloon guide catheter up to the artery, uh, the right or left internal carotid artery. 
And then, you know, from that catheter, from that sheath, I do an angiogram of the brain. And this is when I can see where the clot is, you know, whether it became smaller because of the TPA or did it move similarly because of the TPA. And that basically, those pictures will determine what's my actual device that I'm going to use to do the thrombectomy. And most of the times, I'd say majority of the times what I do is I like to use a stent retriever. And a stent retriever is literally a stent, a self-expanding stent that's connected and welded to a wire. So it doesn't disconnect and it's permanently attached to the wire. So I take a microcatheter and wire through the balloon guide catheter, and usually I use even another catheter called an intermediate catheter or a distal aspiration catheter. A lot of people call it a DAC. And I take the microcatheter and the DAC up into the, you know, more into the brain and to where the clot is. And then through the microcatheter, I'm able to deploy the stent and the stent retriever actually. And after, you know, we let the stent sit in the clot for about five minutes. And at that time, you can kind of relax because usually there's a channel of blood flow that's reestablished into the brain. So you can kind of sit and take a breath and you wait for about five minutes. And then you literally, while attaching different sheets and catheters to suction, you pull the stent out of the brain. And again, that wire doesn't disconnect. You literally pull it from the groin And sometimes it can be tough. You can even see the head move a little bit because it's so incorporated into the artery. But then it usually will give, and then you take it into the catheter, that DAC catheter, at least my technique is this is what I do. And it's been termed or coined the trap technique, but there's six other techniques you can do. And then once those are kind of sandwiched together, I remove that whole system, and then I... I clear the sheath, the balloon guide, which is the only catheter catheter that's left up in the neck. And that's the catheter where I can do a repeat angiogram and see if I got the clot out. A lot of times I can look at that stent that I pulled out and you can see that there's a clot attached to it. Sometimes you don't see that. Sometimes the clot disintegrates or it gets sucked into the machine. But um, the real big thing is to do the angiogram after the procedure And then you can see and you hope to see the flow reestablished and all the vessels patent in the brain. And once you see that, then you can remove everything, close the groin and stop. And so sometimes this procedure can go really quick. And literally in in, in 15 minutes, you can be pulling the stent retriever and and seeing if you got the clot out. It can be longer if the anatomy is harder. Um, Or, you know, a lot of times it doesn't happen with the first time you pull the stent or called the first pass. Sometimes you have to take a couple more passes, um, especially if the clock kind of broke up or if it embolized distally, if it went further into the brain. So, you know, that's really my technique. You know, I, I like to use that. Again, it's called the trap technique, but there's other techniques that, you know, that you'll, you'll hear these terms called salumbra or, adapt and things like this but they're all kind of variations of the same technique plus or minus utilizing the stent retriever and um, also whether or not you use the balloon guide catheter but that's that's kind of start to finish I hope I get it in the first pass and I hope to see those results immediately like we just talked about where they start talking or moving Okay, so now just some follow-up questions um, based off your uh, step-by-step description 
Um, you mentioned you start off with um, getting access. Like, how do you determine, like, whether you want to go through femoral or, as you mentioned, you started doing radial access as well? Yeah, you know, that's a, I pretty much always go femoral to begin with. It's, that may change. And some people promote going radial first for someone who's very old especially for what we call posterior circulation or say the clot is in the basilar artery. A lot of times you could consider going radial first, but I think most people would agree uh, to go groin first. And if you fail or if the anatomy is harder, then convert to radial. But if you are pretty astute and you look at the imaging, I'm, you know, there are instances it hasn't happened to me yet, but to go directly radial and, and that would save you some time. But, you know, again, I think right now I go directly groin with ultrasound and, and my plan is getting that sheath into the internal carotid artery. Um, that, that technique was something I just had to learn how to get up to the neck, but it's, it's pretty easy to do once you learn it. Okay. And um, you also mentioned using, you used a balloon um, occlusion catheter and uh, place it in the internal carotid. Um, yeah. you said that you use that to reverse the flow. How, how does that, could you describe how that works? Yeah. So the balloon guide catheter basically has a balloon at the end of it and it, it will, when you inflate it, it blocks the carotid artery. Now, um, that stops the blood flow from coming, you know, directly up the carotid artery, but you have other vessels that are all connected. The brain is very interconnected, uh, via, um, two main arteries, the posterior communicating artery and the anterior communicating artery, both of those arteries allow the other side of the brain to provide, you know, direct blood flow to the opposite side. So once you apply suction to the, that catheter, basically you start making the flow of blood go from the opposite side of the brain down into the internal carotid artery instead of up into the brain. Now, obviously, you don't want that permanently. You just want that temporarily so that the flow mechanics will change so that when you pull the clot, everything is trying to go outside. It's trying to go away from the brain. And the, the data supports this where that, that results in less distal embolization. And not really, no one has been shown, no one has shown that it gives you a better clot retrieval except that the distal embolization is, is likely less. So that's why I use that technique. Um, uh, but the catheter, of course, since it has a balloon, it's a little stiffer. So in someone whose anatomy is very tortuous, I will just use a normal sheath, like a Neuron Max or something like that, which is just basically a, a softer sheath without a balloon. Um. Another question I have is just if you could describe for some of our listeners who might not have seen a microcatheter themselves, Dr. Don, um, it yeah. sounds like you're deploying this stent retrieval device uh, through a microcatheter, retrieving the clot, and then pulling the clot and stent retriever back through a microcatheter. Um, could you describe for um, our listeners who might not have seen a microcatheter in, or felt it in their own hands, how small that is? Yeah, a microcatheter, I think, is is something that, again, when I first started, when I was first introduced to IR, it was kind of one of the first devices that I saw, and, and I was pretty amazed by it because it's literally a small tube that's the size of, like, angel hair pasta, and it allows you, it goes over a wire, and you can select these tiny 
one, two millimeter arteries anywhere in the body. And then since the catheter has a hole in it, you can do therapies through the catheter, whether those therapies are injecting medicine, delivering particles, or in like this case, putting a stent and uh, a stent retriever, really. So you're able to push this little stent, which is on the wire that's the thickness of a hair, and you are able to put that all the way deep into the brain. And, um, you know, the microcatheter allows you to do that. And tons of hundreds of other things, you know, in different parts of the body. It's incredible, the tools you get to work with in IR. Yeah, I agree. And again, I, I was such a gadget tech geek that I think that's kind of what I really loved initially when I just saw the field for the first time. Mm-hmm. And then I think you've mentioned previously, Dr. Don, that um, in between retrieving the clot and doing an angiogram, there might be some concern that the clot could get stuck in, in the sheath. And I was wondering if you could describe how you, how you handle that um, or prevent it. Yeah, you know, that's something you worry about. And it's, it's more of a neuro-specific, uh, you know, it's in, 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 in every type of peripheral intervention, you think about it. But in neuro, you think about it twice or three times, and you become kind of OCD about it. So when I remove the whole system, um, you know, utilizing that trap technique, or when I'm taking out the stent retriever and the distal aspiration catheter, then I'm left with the balloon guide catheter in the neck. And I, make, I have to make sure that when I put a syringe on it and I pull back, that the blood flow is pretty, it's, it's easily aspirated. If I notice that, you know, it's not flowing that well or whatnot, I'll try to attach more suction and I'll try to pull out the clot, but sometimes I can't. And if I can't, then I'll actually pull even that sheath out. And all I leave is the groin sheath. And in one case, I got the clot stuck in the groin sheath, and I ended up just pulling uh, the sheath over a wire and putting a new one. So, you know, at, no, at any time you're going to inject, you want to make sure that the flow is okay in your catheter that you're going to inject through. So, you know, I'll sometimes pull three or four syringes of blood to make sure it's nice and clean, and then I can inject contrast and make sure it's bubble-free. That's what I do. And if you have to pull your whole system, it's okay. You know, getting back up is not a problem. I know you, you mentioned that um, patients with very tortuous vessels can, be, can make cases uh, much more difficult than, other, than others. Um, I wanted to ask if there are any other variables or patient characteristics, characteristics uh, that would make a case uh, more difficult than your average stroke case. And what sorts of tips and tricks do you use for these situations to overcome them? Yeah, I would say the biggest issue I I find in doing strokes is, you know, we keep these patients awake and, um, you know, you you don't, you don't want to wait for anesthesia. And a lot of times if you, if you try to do general anesthesia for the patients, although they'll be still, um, general anesthesia usually results in a decrease in blood pressure and you want these patients blood pressure, you want them to be hypertensive because, you want the blood flow to the brain to be increased by the pressure. So these patients are awake, they're confused. And so a lot of times they're moving, they're blabbering, you know, they might be aphasic and they're just saying random things. They're shaking their head. So you're basically working with moving targets and sometimes they're grabbing your hand. I mean, it it can be kind of crazy. And so, you know, we do a lot of things to 
restrain the patient, which can sometimes make them more uh, anxious. You know, we'll tape their head to the table, we'll, we'll restrain their hands, but they're usually moving and they can, that can be sometimes one of the most frustrating or hardest part of the case where, you know, you might map something out on the, on your angiogram and then it totally moved because they're moving. So um, that's a challenge. And uh, usually you can give a little bit of sedation and be okay. But I would say that makes some of these cases pretty challenging. The other part, not just tortuous anatomy, but these patients are old and their vessels can be very, you know, narrowed because of atherosclerosis. So if their iliac arteries are bad, that's when having a little bit of peripheral knowledge really helps that some people who do stroke intervention don't have, like a, a neurosurgeon or an interventional neurologist. They don't have too much peripheral experience, so they wouldn't know how to handle some of that. And then after the procedure... Uh, could you describe for us what sort of um, post-procedural care these patients receive? Yeah, so at all times, these patients go to ICU um, after we get a CT to make sure that there's no bleeding that happened intra-procedurally or right after the procedure. And then they go to the ICU and they're managed you know, primarily by the intensivist and the stroke neurologist. Now, as an IR, I you know, will give my input and, and tell them, especially if there's something different than happened in the case, if I needed to stent or whatnot, to guide them in their treatment. But this is where I rely on my team members to, you know, adequately manage the patient, manage their blood pressure, and, and optimize their care so they get the best result. Um, I think it's, it's important to know what they should be getting and to learn that. And you can really learn that well from your stroke colleagues and, and things that you wouldn't learn necessarily in a radiology residency or an IR fellowship. What are some of the most important things you've learned about the post-procedural care, things that surprised you when you finally ended up taking care of stroke patients? The whole idea about blood pressure. I mean, when we're normally, when we're doing cases or after cases, you know, we'll get a call from the nurse saying, oh, the patient's blood pressure is 150 over this. And, you know, in a stroke, you want it to be that high. You want it to be higher. So you kind of, you have to be very careful to not, you know, let the blood pressure drop. I would say that would be one of the biggest things. Then just managing the patient's medicines. You know, if someone was on Coumadin or one of the newer anticoagulants because they have AFib, then when to restart that? Well, if they were on some other medicine that might be different, when to restart that, when to start antiplatelets. I'm still learning, you know, different varying thoughts and mentalities on that. But um, I would say those are the clinically, you know, those are what surprised me post-procedurally and pre-procedurally, just learning about different strokes and how they present, you know, that, that, that I learned a lot from, you know, people who are neuro specifically trained. Um, and then just a, a quick follow-up. You mentioned that you might uh, tell the ICU team um, specific instructions if a patient, for example, got a scent or something special like that happened in the procedure. Um, I was wondering when you would consider giving a stent in the course of treating a stroke um, and what uh, might be different in the post-procedural care for patients who receive this stent. Yeah, you know, carotid stenting, um, you know, sometimes 
these strokes originate from really bad disease in the proximal um, internal carotid artery. And it's, you know, we call it the carotid bifurcation. And at that location is a site where you can get a lot of narrowing. And, you know, of course, I try to avoid a stent if I can. But sometimes, for example, even just a case I had a couple days ago, the origin or the artery is so narrow that you're not going to be able to get any catheter up there. Or it's so irregular that there's clot that you can almost see forming on a ruptured plaque. So you want to be able to prevent any more strokes from happening. So in those cases, when you have to, you can do a stent before or after you do the thrombectomy, depending upon what's going on. And so it doesn't happen, you know, often, but it does happen. And so being familiar with how to do a carotid stent is something that, you know, um, is part of the training process. So I think now is a good time to kind of transition um, into talking about the two recent major clinical trials, um, the DAWN and the Diffuse 3 trials that compared mechanical thrombectomy to uh, the standard um, medical care for patients with ischemic stroke. Um, I wanted to ask what you believe the major takeaway points uh, from these two uh, trials are and what you think every uh, interventional radiologist who uh, involves, who's involved with uh, stroke treatment should know about these trials. Yeah, so the biggest thing about these trials are they increase the time window to treat. And before these trials, the time window was, you know, well under 10 hours. I mean, you would be, most people would be six to eight hours. And sometimes if the stroke was more than that, a lot of centers won't even consider thrombectomy. But what these trials showed, and particularly Dawn, showed that up to 24 hours, they were able to show that in appropriately selected patients, and what that kind of technically means is those patients who get a perfusion scan and they have a good amount of penumbra, that you can still do a thrombectomy and, and cause a noticeable effect, um, basically making the patient, preventing the patient from becoming dependent and still remain independent um, on, after doing thrombectomy. So that opens a whole door. And is not to say 24 hours might not be the limit. Maybe it's two days. You know, there's still data coming. Um, you know, in my head, it's really if a patient has a large vessel occlusion and they have an imaging that shows salvageable brain, you know, I will go for it. And, you know, normally we're not doing perfusions more than 24 hours out, but, you know, it's still a, a, a ever-changing landscape. But that's, that's the major take-home from these studies. I mean, based off what you said, the increase in the time window um, it seems that there's going to be a lot more patients now that are obviously going to be eligible for mechanical thrombectomy. And um, I, even just during my first week when I was on, on the stroke team, there were 11 mechanical thrombectomies uh, that first week. Um, kind of the yeah. thing I wanted to ask you is how are IR groups going to adapt to this increased demand for mechanical thrombectomy based on like the increased eligibility? Yeah, and, and that's the big question right now. I mean, you know, with it, since 2015, stroke has gone up and up, you know, with all the positive trials. It's no doubt that stroke is here to stay 
And it's one of the most impactful procedures that anyone doing endovascular intervention can do. Now, at IR, as far as, you know, there's a lot of controversy and a lot of turf war going on right now. And I think that's it's a hot debate. And if you were to ask uh, interventional neurologists, so that is actually a neurology, you know, medicine neurologist who does a fellowship in interventional neurology, they will most likely say that no one else should be doing stroke thrombectomy except them or a formally trained neurointerventionalist, so neurosurgeon or neuroIR. Um, that point is being taken by a couple big centers like Jayco and, and some stuff, but it, it's, it's a hot debate right now. And, you know, I, I've been involved in the body side because, you know, I'm not formally neurotrained, uh, but I, you know, was able to fortunately kind of have a unofficial neuro fellowship really in my first year in the job because the guys taught me and I scrubbed in on most neuro cases that I could. And so, you know, I, that kind of got me, you know, involved into working with SIR and a lot, there's, there's a lot going on on SIR's part to make sure that, you know, body IRs are one able to be credentialed to do stroke um, because in the end, like you said, there's a lot of patients there who need thrombectomy and, you know, you can't limit the amount of operators to do it. I understand the concern where, you know, uh, you want to make sure whoever's doing it is doing it right and appropriately. But I think as, as body IRs and, and, and vascular specialists, I think our skill set is there to be able to do it. And clinical knowledge obviously is, is very, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to learn. Um, so, you know, we're doing a lot to make sure that people get trained, especially in the new pathway IRDR. I'm working with, with um, guidelines to be able to create guidelines so that everyone gets exposed to neurointervention, even if you're never going to do it. You know, that's one, one regret I have in training is I never, you know, went to the neurology side and tried to learn it. And it, I suffered by just needing to learn a lot in a steep learning curve. But I always wish I, I learned it in my training. And I think everyone should. And, and we're working on it to actually make it standardized and have some, like, guidelines and, and hours of training. So that's, that's kind of all underway. It's all a hot topic. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next year or two as far as society guidelines go. Okay, that's really interesting. And it's also really cool that you got involved with that in terms of like uh, the training program and everything. So Dr. Don, you were talking about how the society guidelines are continually being updated and all of this is based on our clinical evidence. Are there any ongoing clinical trials, especially for thrombectomy, um, that you're especially looking forward to hearing the results about? Yeah, so um, one in particular that I'm involved with is is actually just a retrospective review of groups that have body IRs, body and neuro, or just body. And we're going to look at the results of mechanical thrombectomy and compare it to the trials. And to hopefully, I don't have the results yet, um, show that, you know, the results are similar and, that, and, and comparable so that there's an argument 
against saying that, you know, they, they can't do it as well kind of thing. So I'm looking forward to that. You know, as far as other trials that are ongoing, um, I, I believe some will compare different devices and techniques. But overall, I'm, uh, I'm kind of blanking on what's the next big trial. But um, that, the one that I mentioned, I, I'm definitely looking forward to. Wow. Is, um, what should our uh, listeners look for to know that they fit on the trial you're, you're talking about? So, you know, it'll be, it, I mean, it's, it's still gathering the data between at least 10 centers. We're hoping to get about 500 patients worth of data. Again, it's retrospective. So once we get all that data, it would be pretty quickly published. But just look out for an article by Dr. David Sachs and Joe Gamametti about, you know, body interventional or vascular interventional doing stroke and, the, and, their, and their results. Great. Um, we'll keep an eye out for it. And then we'll see um, maybe later down the road if um, maybe we can post the link on our, on our website for the podcast. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I would say maybe about a couple months, four or five months. Okay. So Dr. Dond, um, it was actually from one of your tweets on Twitter that I first learned about something called a mobile stroke unit. And that's something that I found was very cool because that wasn't something that we had um, here in Miami. And uh, I was wondering if you could kind of describe what a mobile stroke, mobile stroke unit is and um, like kind of how that um, helps uh, in terms of triaging for stroke. Definitely. So, yeah, the mobile stroke unit, it's a new um, protocol, but it is really neat. And, you know, the case that I posted um, was one of the few that, you know, came to our hospital, but we're, we're part of the program where it's literally an ambulance that has a CT scanner in it. And um, it, they basically transport a patient, usually from a center who doesn't do stroke, uh, or, you know, they may actually pick up the patient, and they will scan the patient and send the images literally to our phone while they're transferring the patient to the hospital. So literally, like I said earlier, you know, imaging plays one of the most pivotal roles in, in stroke. And it tells the whole decision, decision-making process. You can't really make a decision on anything until you get that CT. So you can already do so much with that CT before the patient comes. You can mobilize the team. You can already have your decisions about TPA, have it ready to go. And in essence, what it really does is just shave off time. Again, door to puncture time to make it so, you know, ideally... It would be something where the patient gets the CT on the scanner, comes to the ER, gets the drip started, and goes right down to IR. So you could get a door-to-puncture time of, you know, who knows, 10 minutes if you really wanted to. Um, It's a great – I thought that maybe the imaging was not going to be great, but the imaging is great. It's a 16-slice scanner on this particular mobile stroke unit, and you can see everything. And on this case, I saw the hyperdense clot in the basilar artery. So I already knew everything. I had mobilized the team and, you know, we had the tray, everything that I wanted to be ready to go. So we definitely made things faster. And so it's really cool. I mean, it's still a developing program in in multiple cities, but I'm actually going to have a chance to ride with the mobile stroke unit uh, sometime this summer. And I'm looking forward to that because I think it'll be a fun experience. Yeah, it would be really cool. And is this something that you could see like based on your experience with it? Um, that could be like kind of spread throughout most urban centers 
in the United States to kind of help with uh, what you were saying about time to puncture? Yeah, yeah. You know, people are exploring a lot of different options. There's even a mobile stroke doctor unit. So uh, they will actually helicopter a stroke thrombectomy capable, you know, IR or, or interventional neuro, neurologist or whatnot to the hospital that the stroke patient is at. So they're trying both things again, just to, because the transfer process, you can lose a lot of time. And um, there's just a lot of factors in that. So uh, as far as the mobile stroke unit goes, uh, I think it'd be great. I know, you know, it's the, the money and everything, it's based on a grant. And once the grant goes away, hopefully it'll be there to stay, you know, but I, I think it's, it's really neat. I mean, I've never really seen a CT scanner in an ambulance. And, and uh, if you look at my Twitter page, you'll see it. I posted pictures of it because I thought it was pretty neat. Uh, Dr. Dan, if you, Dr. Don, if you feel comfortable, uh, would you like to share your Twitter, Twitter handle with our listeners who might be interested in following you? Oh, of course. Of course. It's, it's at S Don MD. It's, it's not too hard. Just my name S Don and then MD and uh, it should come up. Yeah, it's, you know, you can, you can see a lot of other great stroke cases by other, you know, and endovascularists on Twitter. So you can learn a lot, you know, from different procedures. I know you'd already talked a lot about how you think the treatment of stroke um, is going to evolve over the next few years. Um, do you kind of see more hospitals uh, becoming like um, more capable for like stroke treatment in terms of mechanical thrombectomy? Or do you see more of like a uh, kind of like those large uh, stroke centers, um, a lot of these patients just getting sent straight there, um, even if they seem, even if they're farther away and closer to another hospital. Yeah. You know, I definitely see the whole paradigm is uh, becoming certified as a stroke center. There's different certifications. The top is called comprehensive. And then there's primary stroke center. There's thrombectomy capable stroke center and a couple of other variations, but those are the main three. I really see the paradigm as uh, stroke victims being going directly to comprehensive or thrombectomy-capable stroke centers. And honestly, if, if I was having a stroke, I would hope that I go to one of those centers because everything's in place in order to take out a clot if you're, you're uh, you know, a candidate for that. And the thing I see all the time, you know, when we, because we get transfers, but a patient goes to a center that cannot do it, takes some time. By the time they figure out they can and transfer, you've already lost five hours and the brain can be dead. And so, um, yeah, I, I see more hospitals becoming certified. It's a strenuous process, but completely worth it. And there's incentives for the hospital to do it too. So I see that happening. I know you've mentioned this in some of your previous uh, answers, Dr. Don, but for those of our listeners who are thinking, wow, you know, I really want to be able to treat stroke with uh, thrombectomy as part of my career. Could you describe the different uh, training pathways that someone might pursue in order to be able to, to treat these patients? Yeah, definitely. Right now, there are three official pathways that you won't ever have a problem with, you know, depending upon where the politics go with stroke. You know, one is going through a, a neuro IR fellowship and, you know, you can do neuro IR. Usually, you know, it's after doing radiology, IRDR now, and then you would do 
a second year after finishing IRDR and specifically in neuro. Um, the other option would be doing a you know neurosurgical residency, um, and usually in neurosurgical residencies now they all train their residents to do uh, endovascular intervention. You know, aside from stroke, there's annual there, there's aneurysm coiling, there's AVM treatment, among others. And then finally, and not saying anything bad about this route, but I don't recommend this route, is the going, you can be a neurologist and do the neurology residency and then take a fellowship in interventional. Um, those are the three officially, you know, accepted guidelines of being official neuro interventionalist. Now, you know, my pathway was going through body and vascular IR and uh, then, you know, learning it, you know, quote unquote, on the job. Now, hopefully in a couple of years, I don't get excluded from doing this because of that. And I'm not formally neuro trained, but I am at risk of that. There's a lot of controversy. I mean, the Society of Neurointerventional Surgery, SNIS for short, is doing everything they can to block body IRs from doing stroke, basically. That's one of the challenges of IR being able yeah. to access and treat all the different organ systems. Yeah, you know, the thing that I always argue and, and what my position is, is, you know, as body IR, we are completely capable technically of, of doing it. Uh, you have to be shown. You can't just read it in a book, you know, as long with anything else. And you have to be committed to it. And, and that's why I think having a mentor... It, it, you know, if, if you do go through body IR now, you know, with, with IRDR, if you get exposed to enough neuro, you know, just so you have it in the back of you learn a little bit, I, I, that, that goes a long way. So um, I know you mentioned a couple of procedures um, that neurointerventional radiologists can perform besides stroke treatment. Um, are you involved in uh, performing these procedures as well? And if so, which ones? And could you go into detail about them? Yeah, you know, I will, you know, not by myself. I won't do an aneurysm coiling or an AVM treatment embolization by myself, but I'm scrubbing in on as many as I can, so maybe one day I will. And other other procedures that I do do now by myself are pre-surgical embolizations. So a lot of times meningiomas are very vascular, and our neurosurgeon likes us to embolize them before he resects them. So I do those and, you know, nose bleeders that are pretty bad. You can do an internal maxillary artery uh, embolization. And so I'll do stuff like that, which is all, you know, above the neck space. Finally, Dr. Don, if you met a medical student in the hospital who was going to see a mechanical thrombectomy or an ischemic stroke for the very first time, what, what advice would you give to this student? That's a good question. I would say... The advice I would give a medical student is, you know, just observe how all the teams work together. Observe how the procedure is done. Don't get, don't get uh, focused on the details of what device is being used, but just look at how all the teams are working, how fast the interventionalist is doing his work, and, you know, the clinical scenario. How was the patient before? And how is the patient 24 hours after? And I think just seeing that will, will show you a lot of information on your very first case 
And then if you observe more, you can start focusing on different parts, whether it's before the procedure, during, or after. But I think the first time is to just observe the clinical benefit the patient gets, hopefully, uh, with a successful thrombectomy, and how all the teams are working together. And with that, Dr. Don, uh, we wanted to thank you so much for joining us um, at The Sound of IR and for discussing uh, the treatment of stroke um, and also sharing your experiences um, with Nero IR as well. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. I enjoyed it. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming episodes this season. If you have any questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. If you're a practicing interventional radiologist who would like to get involved with the podcast, please contact us at our email address, thesoundofir, all one word, at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at the underscore sound underscore of underscore IR. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast apps. See you next time. It is scary up there.